wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Lucky lad, said Mrs. Belmartin. It was only mid-afternoon, but the long, dark-paneled corridors of Gagra Manor were already dark, and she carried a silver candelabrum in her hard, white hand as she led him about his new duties. Anna, said Cardin. He said it with feeling. The halls here had always been cold, but his new livery of green velvet, gold brocade, and hard-soled buckled shoes kept him warm, far warmer than the ragged shirt and breeches of a bucket boy ever had. "'I know you know,' said Mrs. Belmartin. "'Anything's better than cleaning up Jordan pouts. "'But you've looked an extra step up the ladder lot. "'This servant's been here fifteen years. "'You'd do crimes to have your new position.' "'Searching out candles?' "'That's right. Hundred fifty-seven rooms in Gogra Manor, "'each of them lit with candles at night, "'and each candle only allowed to be lit once, "'otherwise it reflects poorly on the Earl's reputation. "'What happens to all those candles after they get lit once?' "'Carton had never given it any thought. "'The economics of Chandrilly weren't a high-priority topic for a bucket boy. "'At any given time, between forty and seventy people lived at Gogra Manor, "'and... Regrettably, most of them shat roughly once a day. Even without candles, bucket boys had enough literal shit to think about. The answer is that it doesn't matter to the Earl, said Belmartin, so the butler sells them in town and pockets the change. All right. So? So, you're the one who collects the used candles and hands them off to him, which means you lose a few now and again and start to line your own pockets. If you're not stupid, then in a couple of years you're able to leave this slave's life and set yourself up as a free man. This is England, Mrs. Belmartin, he said. Everybody's free. Cause they are. She stopped in front of a heavy door of coffered oak and rapped loudly. Two, three, four, she muttered, and then pushed it open. They emerged blinking into a vast, empty room. Grey light poured in through the floor-to-ceiling windows, to bleach the grey-blue furniture and carpet, and reflect dully from a black lacquer folding screen in the corner. In front of the cold fireplace stood a large table covered in papers and instruments, beakers, tongs, and alembics, maps of the continent scrawled with arcane sigils and notations, a brass implement with spidery legs. "'See what I just did there?' said Belmartin. "'Always nook, and for the love of God, wait a few moments after you do.' Why? Because it's none of your business what the upstairs folk get up to behind shut doors, and servants who make it their business have been known to get made somebody else's business, if you can, what I'm saying. 
She drew one of those hard, white fingers across her hard, white throat. I'm saying nook and wait. Always nook and wait. She gestured around the room. I know for a fact that the philosophical doctor is not currently in residence. He left for London two days ago to attend the funeral of his daughter, which is today. But I still knocked and waited, because I knew that somebody else might know the same thing, and chose today to dig through the philosophical doctor's effects. As she spoke, he made his way around the room, prying loose used candles from their sockets, and replacing them with fresh candles from the velvet bag slung around his shoulder. Why would they do that? I don't know, and I don't care. But if they did, I wouldn't want to catch them at it, because what games the rich play are none of my business. My business, Cardin, and yours, is to make it through this vile life and as close to wound peace as possible. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. At this point, he was down by the other end of the room, prying used candles out of the wall sconces, and he was half hidden from her sight by the black lacquer screen. Not quite tall enough to reach the sconce without bobbing on the tips of his shoes, he fumbled one of the candles on his way down, and had to crawl on hands and knees as it rolled under a small writing desk behind the screen. The desk was painted with the same coromandel lacquer and gold chinoiseries as the screen itself. As he rummaged underneath it, he realized the cabinet alone was worth more money than he would ever make in his life. Gotcha, he muttered, catching hold of the candle. Wait, what's this? When he withdrew his hand, he found that he had gotten hold of not one, but two candles. The one that had dropped was molded from expensive, buttery beeswax. The other was a greasy, hand-dipped candle of animal tallow. Taking the opportunity provided by the screen, he pocketed both. "'Ready for the next room, Cardin?' said Mrs. Belmartin, when he emerged from the screen. She had a knowing gleam in her eyes, and he self-consciously shifted the bag on his hip to conceal the bulge of candle ends in his pocket. Wanting to distract her with a turn in the conversation, he asked, "'Mrs. Belmartin, what happened to her?' The daughter of the philosophical doctor. She died. A certain tragedy. She closed the door of the philosophical doctor's room behind them, and they were plunged back into the flickering, candlelit gloom of the servants' corridors. What kind of tragedy? What kind? Have you learned nothing in your time on this earth, bucket boy? When a young girl dies suddenly, there's a word for the cause, and that word is man. You mean she was murdered? Not necessarily. Could have been manslaughter, accident, childbirth, the abortionist knife. Could have been an hundred other things. But you ask me, at the bottom of most likely outcomes, you'll find a man. Cardin didn't know what to say to that. Oh, don't worry, Cardin, she said. You're still just a boy. Here's hope for you yet. She stopped beside a door, and he knocked and waited before opening. Good boy, she said. You may yet live till I get out of this place. That night, back in the whitewashed cell he called a room, he sat on his hard cot, examining the two lengths of wax he'd stolen. He knew a family, some doors down from where he'd grown up, who'd give him a good price to smuggle manor house candles, and would keep their mouths shut. The one that had fallen from the sconce would be worth something. He was less sure about the one under the cabinet. Why would someone as rich as the philosophical doctor burn tallow candles? They were what peasants used to light their homes. They were what servants used, he thought, jamming it into a candlestick. 
to light their cells. As the bucket boy, light in his room had been a rare luxury, but now that he was a liveried servant, his place in the world was higher. He decided he was never going to live in darkness again. He decided that, from now on, whatever it took, he was always going to burn as many candles as he wanted. He touched a lit taper to the tallow candle wick, which caught. A dim flame flared into life, unspooling a gray thread of smoke that stank lightly of rancid pork. He barely noticed the smell. He had lived with worse his entire life. The candle sputtered as bits of badly rendered fat crackled in the burning tallow. Exhausted from the day's work, he sat back on his cot, watching the smoke rise like rain in reverse to pool on the ceiling. Then, something interesting began to happen. At first, he thought it was a trick of his tired brain in the dim light. But no, the smoke began to sink again, as if it was suddenly colder than the air around it. He felt his tongue go dry. The whole room now stank of burnt and rancid meat. As it fell, the smoke spit and curled around an empty space in the air. Cardin caught his breath and scrambled back against the cold, whitewashed brick. An empty space, the shape of a crouching figure in the middle of the air. It was a human silhouette. As he looked on in horror, the smoke began to roll down the front of that empty space, like a grey silk curtain blown back against the features of a person standing behind it. He made a small noise, and the outline resolved itself at last. An invisible thing tilted its head at him, a void adumbrated by the smoke. It was a girl. Maybe. In the shifting cloud he thought he caught the outlines of threadbare clothing, threadbare ribs, and hollow sockets with the dark smoke pooled. Who are you? he said. I am an Iphigene candle. It was a thin voice, hoarse, and difficult to make out like the voice of someone speaking through the cold cracks of a stone wall. I answer questions, it said. What is your question? How do I get you to leave? Put the candle out. He lunged forward, plunging his bare palm down on the wick. Hot fat scalded him as the light went out, and he withdrew, nursing the hurt. He was alone again, in the thin moonlight that filtered through the fist-sized window in the top corner of his room. He passed his hand through the air above the extinguished tallow, and felt nothing. To be safe, he locked the candle in his strongbox. He sat in darkness for a while, trying to decide what he made of what had just happened. He arrived at no conclusions. Though he wasn't much for prayers, he prayed that night. The next morning he saw the new bucket boy going about his rounds, and intentionally refused him eye contact. He changed candles, set and cleared silverware, fetched in closeted coats for the guests. It was strange to handle rich men's coats. To Carton's eyes, his new clothes were finer than those belonging to the upstairs people, who dressed black, white, and brown, not bright green velvet or gold thread brocade. But his brightness, he realized, did not reflect on his status, but on the Earl's. It was like the golden bridle on a rich man's horse. For so long, he had hungered to wear a uniform like this. Now, understanding what it represented, he hungered for a time when he wouldn't have to wear this... costume. 
which meant one thing. He needed money. That night, he paced in the darkness for a long time before his mind made itself up. As the moon began to set somewhere beyond his narrow window, he lit the candle again. Again, the crackle, hiss, the stream of smoke, the smell of rancid, carbonizing pork. And again, there above the candle's dim light, hunched the dim, smoky outline of a crouching girl with hollow eyes. His voice quavered as he spoke. You're an Imogen Candle, he said. Iphigen. And you have to answer my questions truthfully. Yes. And you know everything. Many things. He took a moment to think. He'd been raised on stories about ghosts and spirits and Trixie Fay, and his instinct had been to distrust the candle. But something about the flat lack of affect in its voice made him think it didn't lie. It was like speaking to a brass clock. Will a philosophical doctor come looking for you? Yes. How do I hide you? Performing the ritual of St. Ludigar on my candle will blind others to its presence. How do I do that? She told him, and he extinguished her. The next day he acquired the ingredients, a gimlet from the woodshop, the eye of a fish from the kitchens, and several of his own tears. These were the hardest for him to acquire, he muddled the tears and the fisheye together over flame, while muttering certain words. Then, after stirring the mixture six times counterclockwise with the gimlet, he carved a particular rune into the candle, which he lit. Did the ritual work? Yes, said the girl. So the candle can only be seen by me? Yes. He paced the narrow width of his room, trying to think what to ask the Iphigene candle. Her hollow eyes followed him back and forth. When the candle burns down, you're gone forever? Yes. Shit. He tried to think quickly. Where does the butler hide the money he makes from his side rackets? He has a strong box in his room, but he lives in fear of burglars, and so he has buried a trove of guineas underneath the third oak tree from the left, in the northeast of the English garden. Good. Good. Thank you, he said. He suddenly looked up eyes meeting the patch of smoky darkness where her eyes should have been. Until then, he had always looked away, not wanting to see. But he had surprised himself by thanking her. Thanking was something you did for a person, not for a... a what? A cursed artifact? He shook his head. He was burning down the candle, wasting his most precious resource. He leaned forward, and she watched, impassive, motionless, as he blew her out. He dug up the guineas, pocketed a small number, and then buried the rest in a place only he knew. It was quite the nest egg. The butler had been smart and thrifty, not to mention ludicrously corrupt, and it was enough to keep someone living in style for years. In Carden's mind, theft from a thief didn't count for much, and besides, the butler's reputation as a lech with the maids was one of many things at the manor that trickled down to the bucket boy. But, in this world, it wasn't enough for a common man to have money. He needed an excuse for having it. He needed a better job. Are any one of the footmen keeping a secret? He asked the candle, the next night. Reckham, she said. And gosh, Reckham gambles and cheats to win. Does he have money? Yes. Guineas? Hidden behind a loose brick in his room. Hmm. And Kosh? Has debts. 
He blackmails Rackham to stay above water. Thank you, Iphigene. May I call you Iphigene? It does not matter what you call me. And this time, strangely, she went out of her own accord. The next day, a search of the servants' quarters had been ordered. Some had been stolen, said Mrs. Belmarden. From whom? said Cardin. Mrs. Belmarden could be cold and silent as North Country stone if she disliked you. But to those she felt warmling about, Cardin included, she could be a great gossip. Word is from the philosophical doctor. Some bit of papistry or dark magic, no doubt. Dark magic? He let his eyes go wide. But what servant would steal anything like that? No servant would be stupid enough to steal something important in this household, she said. But while the upstairs people go through life plundering our Lord's creation, they find it hard to believe that an upstairs person would ever descend to so petty a crime as theft. Cardin was sitting cross-legged on the bed when he heard them coming down the hall. The butler's slow, heavy tread he recognized, but there was another sound that came with it, a quick, metallic tapping that sent a strange fear shivering through his guts. The door swung open, and a shining thing skittered around the crack before the butler could enter. Cardin shouted and jumped back on the bed so he was standing with his back to the wall. It was that brass implement from the philosophical doctor's desk. Something like a sundial with spider's legs, except that the arm of the sundial carried a thick yellow wick, which burned slowly with a low, blue flame, and dripped red liquid into a collecting tray. The flame stank of sulfur, and as Cardin stared at the thing in revulsion, the sundial part began to gradually tick around in a circle. Some irrational part of Cardin's mind told him it was sniffing for something. The butler barged in after it, ignoring both Cardin and the machine as he began to tear apart the room. He had a hollow red look in his eyes, as if he hadn't slept, as if he'd been crying and drinking in secret. A candle, he said pausing to glare up at Carton. Have you seen a candle, bucket boy? Not meaning to be smart, sir, but that's all I see every day. A different candle. Tallow. Tallow candle, sir? In the Earl's house? Just then, the brass spider clicked. The arm froze in place, angled at Carton's bed. A small brass hammer on the creature's back flicked against a little bell, sending a clear ding to the sudden silence. Well, now, said the butler, his eyes sharpening as he looked up at Carton. What are you hiding under your bed, bucket boy? Please, sir, it's just my strong box. Key, said the butler. Now. Carton handed it over and shrank into a crouch as the butler tore his strong box out from under the bed and ripped through it, flinging clothes and papers on the ground. The Iphigene candle was there, in the box, in plain sight, but the butler seemed unable to see or feel it. Nothing. The butler spat. He glanced back at the brass machine with its stinking flame. Bloody useless thing. No wonder his lordship is on the brink of throwing the doctor out on the street. But then, his eyes fixed on something in the box, and a wild, manic look spread across his face. Well, now, he murmured. Well, 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 now. What have we here, bucket boy? He surged to his feet, brandishing a golden coin. With his other hand, he seized Cardin by the front of his shirt and slammed him back into the wall. Where's the rest of them? He shouted, and Cardin's heart nearly stopped. 
as he realized how badly he may have miscalculated. Please, sir, I, I, I got him from Wreckham, from playing cards. The butler's eyes narrowed. Wreckham, he muttered. He had cheap brandy on his breath. You beat Wreckham at cards. Please, I, I think he was going easy on me. Hmm, you don't say. He let Carden go and took a step back, looking him up and down. Rackham always did have a soft spot for pretty boys. Pulled it from a loose stone behind his bed, said Carden. The butler spat and then stormed from the room without another word. For a long moment, the brass machine lingered, and Carden had a sixth sense that somehow, even without any eyes, it was looking at him. Then the hammer struck the bell for a second time, and the brass sundial swiveled around. It left the room its legs tapping with the sound of sewing needles ringing against your teeth. Quick as he could, Carden shut the door and lit the candle. Where can I find Reckham right now? Almost before she could finish answering, he blew out the candle and sprinted down the hall. Reckham was in the buttery, eating a late lunch. You have to run, Carden said, falling against the table to catch his breath. Kosh, Kosh told the butler where you keep your winnings hidden. He thinks you've stolen from him. Reckham turned white. You're a good lad, Cotton, he said, and then took off at a run. When Reckham was gone, Cotton sat down and ate the rest of the man's lunch. In the weeks that followed, Cotton decided to lie low. With Reckham on the run, Kosh thrown in debtor's prison shortly thereafter, and the butler fired for his drunkenness, Cotton had jumped three steps up the ladder in as many days. Now, as a comfortably ranking footman, he had access to the upstairs people and the chance to impress them with his wit, his professionalism, and his well-shaped calves. An easy year or two of this, and he might get hired on as a valet or butler by some other household. A few tips and overheard secrets there, and he might leave service to set himself up in London as a man of business. Yet, even though there was no reason for him to use the candle, he still found himself lighting it most nights. What's your name? Carden asked it. One such evening. I don't have a name. I am an Iphigene Candle. Were you always an Iphigene Candle? No. It was an answer to his question. By the rules that bound her, she did not need to elaborate. But the figure in the smoke hesitated, and seemed to shake her head, as if trying to catch hold of a thought. At last, she added, I was once a girl. He blew out the candle and she vanished, plunging him into blue darkness. He'd suspected it. Since that first night, a creeping suspicion had been growing up his spine. In truth, he had put off asking that question for a long time, because he had not wanted to hear the answer. But now it was all but confirmed. This candle that smoked and sputtered and stank of pork was an abomination. Someone had been murdered to create it. He suspected who, and he suspected by whom. He lit her again the next night. He knew this was imprudent. Each time he lit the candle for no reason, he was wasting a question he might need later. But maybe he was curious. Maybe he was lonely. Maybe there were reasons motivating him without his knowledge. What was your name when you were a girl? Alana. Alana. He'd always liked the name Alana. Your father was a philosophical doctor. Yes. 
He clenched his fist. The man's own daughter. How could anybody do such a thing? Ah. He hesitated. He wanted to ask if she was in pain, but couldn't quite bring himself to say the words. He tried a different angle. Do you like being an Iphigene candle? No. Even now, she spoke without affect. Nothing she said ever had any emotion. But in that same flat tone of voice, she said, I hate it. I wish I could be free. She had been made into a thing. She wanted to be free. How could he, who had been a living toilet turned into a living doll in ludicrous clothes, fail to understand? How... He was surprised to find that he was fighting back sobs. He, who had struggled so hard to produce tears for the right of St. Ludiger, who had climbed his way up from destitution with a smile on his face. How? He started again. How can I set you free? I have to go into the fire that made me. She said. Where? She told him. Because of the right of St. Ludigar, the candle provided light for him alone as he hurried down the servants' corridors. She floated along the plume of smoke behind him, crawling on all fours through the empty air, as if through a cramped and claustrophobic tunnel. If he glanced backward, his gorge would rise at the repulsive sight of her, grey and insubstantial, with yawning darknesses for her eyes and mouth. So he kept his gaze forward until he arrived at a familiar door. He stopped and listened for a long moment. No sound from within. He looked for a crack of light under the door. None. He pushed it gently open and emerged into a vast, empty room. Moonlight poured in through floor-to-ceiling windows to glow upon the grey-blue furniture and carpet and reflect dully from a black lacquer folding screen in the corner. In front of the cold fireplace stood a large table covered in papers and instruments, beakers, tongs, and scalpels, maps of the coast scrawled with arcane sigils and notations, and that brass implement with its spidery legs now curled up on top of it, like a butterfly pinned to a card. Cardin took little note of any of this, rushing around the table to crouch before the heath of neatly dressed stone and kindle a flame with shaky hands. And then... Cardin, is it? A tired voice. Behind the lacquer screen, a light was uncovered, the sudden glow casting long shadows across the ceiling. Around the edge of the screen stepped a slumped figure with a lit candlestick. Cardin froze. The man wore a black silk dressing gown over silk pajamas. Curiously, he also wore one leather glove on the hand that carried the light. He was rubbing his eyes with the knuckles of the opposite hand. Plainly, he had been asleep at the desk behind the screen. Cardin had forgotten to knock. Ritual St. Ludigar, was it? said the doctor. I suppose it's here with you now. The candle. What candle? said Cardin. I've just been sent here to light the fire, sir. If you've come here to destroy it, then you must already know what it is. What she is. It was a foolish thing to say, but something had overridden his usual instinct for survival. Ah, yes, said the philosophical doctor, sitting himself down in front of the hearth. He was not an old man, but he looked very tired and very grey. Light the fire, Cardin, 
he said. We may as well be warm while we talk. Warily, Carden bent back to the pile of kindling. What is there to talk about? Sir, he said. Do you know, said the doctor, I was like you once. Young, ambitious, poor. Maybe not quite so poor, but not that much better off, believe me. Hmm. Mrs. Belmarden had often mentioned how much the rich liked to pretend they understood poverty. I bit and clawed my way up the ladder, the doctor said. But the further I went, the further I needed to go to earn the respect of those around me. Do you understand me, Carden? I am personal friends with the Earl, yes, but he doesn't respect me. For all my learning, all I've done for this country, I'm still just some up-jumped commoner to him. A spark flared. Tinder caught light and smoked. Over Carden's shoulder, the silent girl watched. Even here, in the presence of her father, she showed no emotion. Is that meant to explain what you did, sir? No, said the doctor. It's meant to convince you I'm human, and not so different. Carden blew on the fire. Kindling began to catch. Carden, our country stands on the brink of war. War with all of Europe. Bonaparte could leave Calais and land his grenadiers at Dover within a matter of hours. The very survival of England is at stake. With respect, sir, what has England ever done for me? Think of what it might do for you. A bright young man willing to do what it takes to get ahead. A young man with a powerful sponsor. Give me the candle, Carden, and I'll see that you rise far beyond what you could have ever imagined. Wealth, prestige, knowledge, it can all be yours if you just... Give me that candle. You reached out for it. The girl looked at him, expressionless, the span of her half-life burning down second by second. He did not know what to do. She was not a real girl. She was already dead. But he, Carden, could be saved. What should I do? He asked. I cannot answer that. She said, You should give me the candle, Carden, said the doctor, thinking the question had been addressed to him. You'll be richly rewarded. Imagine it. A house like this, all your own. He chuckled softly. <laughs> You'll even have your own bucket, boys. And why shouldn't someone else use the candle you've used so freely? I will use it to save ships and battalions. Maybe the entire country, millions of lives, in one little bit of wax. Tallow, said Carden. One little bit of tallow. The philosophical doctor flinched and fell silent. Carden glanced back up at the girl. She had not moved. Why did you do it? Carden asked. To your own daughter... It was how the spell worked, said the doctor in a soft voice. It was the only way for me to help my country. Why did he do it? said Cardin, asking her this time. It was how the spell worked, she said, 
It was the only way for him to help his country and himself. Do you forgive him? He listened to her answer and then stared deeply into the fire. Well, said the doctor in a hoarse voice, licking his lips. What did she say? She forgives me. Right. Surely, a dear father, who only wanted to do what was right. It never stops, does it? Said Carden. Does what? Said the doctor. No matter how high you climb, I'd just end up like you, wouldn't I? The philosophical doctor's eyes had gone cold. Would that truly be so bad? I am rich and respected. I have improved my lot in life, purely by hard work, intelligent sacrifice, and... Without letting him finish, Cardin tossed the candle into the fire. It kept its form only for a moment, before flames licked away the tallow and burned the wick to nothing. The final beads of human fat snapped and hissed in the flame, and a rush of thick smoke ran up from the hearth, so thick that for one lasting moment the girl really seemed to be there, and the hand that reached out to brush Cardin's cheek seemed almost to have both matter and form. And then, like a drop of ink dispersing in water, she was gone. Oh, said the doctor, I didn't think you were going to do that. I really didn't think you would be so foolish. Cardin stood up. Will that be all, sir? He said. Yes, said the philosophical doctor. From inside his dressing gown, he reduced a small flintlock and shot Cardin through the heart. It seemed to take a long time for the sound of that gunshot to die away. When at last it did, the philosophical doctor sat back in his chair and stared at the body while long minutes dripped by as slow as wax. At last there came some clamor at the door, the low voices of male servants, followed by the polite, brisk knock of Mrs. Balmartin. "'Everything's fine,' the philosophical doctor called. "'Just an accident, that's all.' And, after another moment's murmuring, silence fell on the other side of the door, and he was left alone with the body. Somewhere, the clock struck three. The sound seemed to rouse him from his torpor, and he stood, stepping over the spreading pool of the boy's blood to rummage through the clutter on his desk. He came away holding some glass vials in one hand and an obsidian scalpel in the other. He sighed. He was so tired of the long, late nights. But he had deadlines to keep and there was no sense in letting good parts go to waste. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, The Candle, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. 
You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>